At any rate, so Mark chapter 4, like Andy said, we are continuing in kind of this uh, three-part um, a series, little mini-series here, sub-series about um, uh, the, the parables. Jason got us going last week with his, uh, with his potato chips and the hyperbolic paraboloids. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was something else. I do remember the, the, the Pringles, though. That was, uh, that was good. So last week we began phase three of our time in the Gospel of Mark. Um, in phase one, uh, we got started. We learned a little bit about how this Jesus guy came onto the scene and what he came to do. And perhaps the most important line in Mark's story, does anybody know, does anybody, can anybody take a guess of what the, probably the most important line is of Mark's gospel so far? I think I've said it every week of the series, at least that I've preached. All right. Something like that, right? Mark 1.15, yeah, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Um, so we learned a little bit about, about Jesus. That, that's kind of like uh, he comes out of the wilderness and he says that. It's kind of like, I don't know, the mission statement. It's like the thesis statement of the entire gospel. Um, when Jesus said that the kingdom has come near, the Greek phrase literally means to, to bring near or to join one thing to another. It's as if Jesus is saying that the kingdom, it's, it's within your grasp. The kingdom is one of the most important things to understand about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith in general. The Christian faith that kind of that grows out of the truth that God's rule and reign can be lived into now, can be lived into today. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we're not talking about some future hope in, in heaven one day, sweet morning when I fly away and all that. No, no, we're talking about the kingdom of God that can be tasted right now. And the truth is, it's not about, also, it's not about this thing that that we can taste and we can experience only if we're good enough to earn it. No, the truth of the kingdom is that the invitation to live, it is an invitation to live under the reality of God's love right now as he's putting the world back together. The problem is that we often hear that and we think, okay, God, I'm really glad you're putting the world back together. Here's how I think it should all go down. God's response, however, is for us to be put in our place as a part of his plan, called to obedience and submission to to his telling of the story, not ours. The economy of his kingdom, it, it works differently than we might expect. That's what we're seeing in the, in the parables here. But our God, our God is a God of mystery, but he is also a God of radically generous love. This might be a difficult pill to swallow, though, when we consider the darkness that the world has been infected by, even in the years since Jesus' resurrection. War, violence, poverty, corruption, they fill the pages of our history books, and it's pretty clear that if God is in the business of putting this world back together again, he certainly isn't finished with the job. 
And we think of how much, it's even, it's even more peculiar when we think of how much of that war, violence, poverty, and corruption has been caused by people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. When we think about that, the picture might even look even more bleak. Much of that feels familiar if we consider the context of Jesus' own words. And here in, in Mark 4, beginning in cha- uh, verse 21, Jesus says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket or under a bed and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. So the disciples may have thought that they had ears to hear, right? For a century, Israel, God's chosen people, Israel, but had been under the rule of a different kind of kingdom. The the Roman Empire had taken control of their lands, taxed their people, and even infected their leadership. Sure, there were leaders such as Herod, um, but they were only like puppets. Their only power was the power given to them by Rome. And that was a far cry from Israel's beginning. Do me a favor and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 12. When you think of words that describe the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the Genesis 1 through 11, what what would you say, or at least maybe let's say Genesis 3 through 11, what one word describes this, this section of Scripture? Fall or sin, right? Genesis 1 and 2 describes how this God, our God, created the world in dynamic fashion. He created it with lots of growing things, as we've been experiencing over the past couple of days. It's a a world, it's a creation of dynamic life that was affected by a fall. And that fall started with something very specific, a specific thing that God God told His creation not to do told men and women not to do, and yet they did it anyway. They disobeyed, and then sin affected this good creation that God, that, that God had for his people, that God had created for his people. But it's interesting that that one little choice quickly escalates, right? Because first it's like an individual choice, and then in the next story we actually get a brother killing a brother. And then we get this by the time, the, um, uh, within the next couple of chapters, we see sin just spreading to the point where even a flood that wipes away like 99% of humanity even can't get rid of sin. I mean, you ever think about that? Like, that, that, that's what the story of the flood was all about. The, the first image we get, the first picture after the flood is of Noah's family doing something horrible. Like, even wiping away all of that in a massive flood, even that can't wipe away sin. And so the story of Genesis 1 through 11, or 3 through 11, is this about how sin has just gotten radically out of control. And you think about, what is God going to do? What's He going to do to try to put the world to right? Put the world to rights. And right then, you might think, well, Jesus could just get on the cross right then and there, right? God doesn't do that. What does he do? The Lord said to Abram, Go from your father's country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And get this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a covenant, covenant with Abram saying that you're going to be my guy and through you I'm going to create a family. I'm going to create a rescue mission to save the world. So Israel's story from there um, on had ups and downs to say the least. Rome wasn't the first major empire that had attempted to dominate Israel. They were just another in a line of pagan rulers in the midst of the history of God's chosen people. Many alive in the time of Jesus would have been understandably perplexed as to why if God wanted them to be a great nation who blessed all the families of the world, why then would they find themselves under the thumb of the oppressive Roman Empire? Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, or perhaps, perhaps better yet, God through Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. The light to the nations uh, was God, was His law, like Andy mentioned before. Not, not His people, um, not, not, uh, not pagan rulers. Psalm 119, like we read earlier, talks about how God's law or His word is a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path. The previous passage in Mark, like Jason talked about last week, is the parable of the sower, a parable that showed that God is in the business of spreading his word generously around various kinds of soil. Jesus' parable paints a picture of God as not perhaps the best farmer, but truly the best God who deals with this creation in extravagance. And I hope you've had the, a, a chance to, to taste a little bit of that extravagance over the past few days as spring has arrived in Maryland with a sort of splendor that makes you just want to fall to your knees in Thanksgiving. We truly live in a beautiful state. I, I think about how many hidden corners of the earth have just this kind of stop-you-in-your-tracks beauty, and yet are rarely ever witnessed by human eyes. I mean, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gone like off the beaten path for a few hours and wandered into a part of the woods that's kind of remote and, and hidden, but also like possessed this, this beauty that was just remarkable? It's incredible that there are even parts of Maryland, as well populated as Maryland is, that barely are, get witnesses by human eyes. It gets even more incredible when we think about the places around the world that people actually rarely ever see. Mountaintops in the Arctic and jungles and rainforest. In that sense, there's, there's, a, kind of, there's a kind of literalism, right, to the parable of the sower. God might have just said, eh, nobody ever is going to go back there. But then you, you come around that corner, you're like, oh, wow. I might have been the first person to see this like, and actually take a moment and, 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 and praise God through it uh, in years. I and mean, have you ever taken a moment to stop where you are and consider something as intricate as, as like a flower? Or even as like, I don't know, something, this is really silly, but even something like, you ever like look at a blade of grass? 
and just like see like the intricate details of it and notice that there's actually like if you look really close there's actually a magnificence magnificence in this just little tiny thing these are things that we get you know we pass by repeatedly um because we're you know got more important things to do than stare at blades of grass i love um i love sherlock holmes mysteries especially uh i enjoy listening to them on audiobook uh if you get a chance on itunes there is uh the audiobooks that are read by Edward Hardwick, who played Dr. Watson on, on numerous occasions, are especially good. Um, and so my favorite Holmes mystery is The Naval Treaty. And it's a story where the detective is called on to locate a document of enormous importance which had gone missing. Um, it's the, sto- it's, the story is kind of typical for Sherlock Holmes' mystery, except for there's one aside. When he's trying to like figure out this mystery, there's one aside that kind of seems like really weirdly out of place. There's this one particular part where, where Holmes is examining a crime scene, and just as he's making comments about collecting facts and speaking of authorities, he gets distracted by something that's out the window. And he walks over to the window, and, and he says, what a lovely thing a rose is. L- listen as uh, Watson narrates. He says, he walked past the couch to the open window, and held up the drooping stalk of a moss rose, looking down at the dainty blend of crimson and green. It was a new phase of his character for me, for I had never before seen him show any keen interest in natural things. He said, There is nothing in which deduction is so necessary as in religion, said he, leaning as his back against the, sh- against the shutters. It can be built up as an exact science by the reasoner, Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to me to rest in the flowers. All other things, all powers, all desires, our food, are all really necessary for our existence in the first instance. But this rose is an extra. Its smell and its color are an embellishment of life, not a condition of it. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so I say that we have much to hope from the flowers. Now, don't get me wrong. The point of today's sermon is not that you should go spend all day long meditating on flowers. But there is a point that there is this hidden and truly unnecessary extravagance around us all the time. That's the kind of God whose story we're in. In the same sense, though, it it also appears that nothing is wasted. It might have seemed to the disciples like whatever light Israel and Israel's God was being extinguished by Rome. Whatever light Israel had, it was being extinguished by Rome. But here Jesus is saying, listen, nobody brings a lamp into the room just to put it under something that's going to hide its light. Lamps are meant to be eventually used But then he adds something really spectacular. He says, for there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. It's as if Jesus is is getting at this idea that somehow a present hiddenness can actually serve the purposes of revelation. 
that thing that for the time seems hidden or unnoticed or removed around the corner will eventually come to light. And the fact that it was hidden for a time might just make you appreciate all the more the light once that light does what it was created to do. You don't bring a lamp into a room just to hide it, unless, of course, you have a reason to. Maybe you were trying to surprise someone. Maybe you wanted a moment of darkness for a somber moment. But, but if you had a reason to hide it, my suspicion is that would be that the light would mean all the more once it was turned on. Growing up as a, as a child of divorce, I remember moments of severe sadness and confusion. But, you know, now I look back on that I can't like say, man, that was great. But I can see how God was working. He's given me a taste of the wider story that he was telling in the lives of our, of our family and in our circle of friends. There was a temporary hiddenness, a, a temporary darkness that somehow served the purposes of my own illumination. Now, does that mean that God orchestrates sin? Meganoita, absolutely not. But he certainly knows how to redeem it in a way that serves his holy purposes. One writer puts it this way, Faith is born in the tension between revealing and veiling of the truth. Let me say that again. Faith is born in the tension between the revealing and the veiling of the truth. Put this all together. God, the author of life and light, called a people to serve as a light to the rest of the world. For the time being, it would seem that that light is hidden. But remember, even if there is a reason for something to be hidden for a time, lamps are brought into the room for one purpose. So how are they going to do it? How is this small nation going to somehow bless the world while they are under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire? Later on in the book of Mark, the writer says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Stick with me here. Jesus says, that ultimately, the purpose of a lamp is for it to be put on a lamp stand. Jesus, the one who is in very nature God, um, the one who is Israel's representative Messiah, the one true king, the one who is going to be the light of the world, he's going to be the lamp of the world, and that lampstand that will ultimately accomplish God's purposes and ultimately declare victory over the empires of this world is the lampstand of the cross. That's how God did it. Sacrificial love was how God became king. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And then Jesus follows up with this kind of pithy parable. He says, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For, for to those who have, more will be given. And for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is another powerful image of God's economy. At first, it might seem like Jesus is quoting the Beatles. And in the end, the love you take 
is equal to the love you make. By the way, if you get a chance, I tried to get this for this morning, but if you get a chance, Google Chris Farley interviews Paul McCartney, and he asked, he asked him about that line, and it's, it's, it's really, really funny. Go, go home and, and Google that. Um, or, or like, you know, you're going to get out of this what you put in. That, that kind of seems like that's what Jesus is saying, and, and there's truth in that. But, but then Jesus adds this tag because it's just the kind of thing that Jesus would do. And still more will be given to you. Like, yeah, you're going to get out of this what you put into it, but then you're going to get a whole lot more because that's how God works. The danger here is to assume, the danger here is to assume that it was all works righteousness all along, and all I have to do is somehow earn my measure from God. That, that's not it. The point is that it's all grace, it's all gift. Now what are you going to do with it? In Christ, you are the light of the world. Are you going to hide that light away and squander the gifts that He gave you on building storehouses of grain for yourself? Or are you going to use those gifts in order to spread the good news of God's kingdom throughout the entire world? The problem was that Israel was so obsessed with victory over the Gentile world that they forgot about God's healing salvation for the world. And the church today isn't above this. We can often be so concerned about how God is going to ultimately judge what we perceive as evil, how God's going to judge this world, that we forget that God so loved the world that He gave His Son for it to be saved. God's going to take care of sin. You can count on that. The cross proves that. But what we need to be concerned with is using the gifts that He gave us to be a people that carry that light, even carry that light of sacrificial love to the darkest parts of the earth. When you give your life to that kind of purpose, to that kind of vision, to that kind of energy, you're going to receive blessings. You're going to receive blessings out of your eyes. But when you hide that light away and you live a life simply of religiosity and going through the motions and, oh, yeah, I came to church this week and, no, you're going to end up being worse off than when you started because all you've really done is wasted your time. God wants a relationship with you. God wants your life. God wants 100% of who you are, 100% of your time and your talent and your treasure. He wants it all for His glory. He wants you to follow Him. uh, Spreading God's light. That's the most exciting uh, job on the planet. And the beautiful thing is that there is no task on earth that can't be done for God's glory, and for the purposes of being that light to others. I don't care if you're scrubbing toilets or you're managing a Fortune 500 company. I don't care if you're a parent, a business owner, a student, or a pastor. If you do it for God's glory, then He will bring what is hidden to light, and He will, through you, spread the message of His light to the ends of the earth. That's why... Being the church is so vital. That's why we have relationships with each other. That's why we have house churches so that we can kind of be in each other's business and kind of remind each other, you know, how is your light? Are you being a light? Do you feel that you're being hidden? Are there choices that you need to make? Are there things you need to learn? 
Are there prayers that need to be prayed? Is there things you need to give over? I don't know. But I know that one of the most important things that we can do to accomplish this and to follow God is to be in community. And that's why I love this thing called New Hope Community Church. Let's pray for us. Father, your word, it's a light to our path. Your word tells us that our responsibility is to seek first the kingdom of God. To first be a citizen of this kingdom. To believe that ultimately the story of creation, the narrative that we are living in, the story in which we find ourselves, that story is headed towards a consummation of all things that is going to put the worlds to right. Put the world to rights. Father, help us to be on that path, to, to walk into that light, to declare that right, to, to light, to proclaim it to our friends. Father, this week, we're going we're gonna to come in contact with another human being who is far from you, someone who is far from, from, from your light. Help us follow your path to, to, to say what you would have us say to them, to be your witnesses. Help us do it in a way that is saturated in your love and saturated in the love that we have for other human beings. You've called us to live that kind of a life. Help us to, to glorify you through our work, through whatever we find our hands doing this week. Help us to, to glorify you through that so that that may be how one little way that we show our light. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray all these things and pray for my brothers and sisters here assembled. Amen.